Hillary. I'm Emily. We're the, we the sirens. Today we are discussing the movie It Happened One Night, which was directed by Frank Capra. It was also produced by Capra, and it stars uh, Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert, and it's based on a short story called Night Bus by Samuel Hopkins Adams. Uh, the cinematography, which I hope that we discuss, was by Joseph Walker, and the movie was released in early 1934, right before the enforcement of the Motion Picture Production Code, which had been adopted actually in 1930, but hadn't didn't actually go into effect until July of 1934. So it like slipped in right before this entire movie probably couldn't have been made. Um, okay, I was gonna say like it's very clear that this is pre-code. Yes, <laughs> every scene. The plot of it happened one night is that so Alan Andrews is a spoiled socialite who's eloped with a pilot against her father's wishes. She literally jumps ship to escape uh, her father's confinement in Florida, and she catches a night bus back toward New York where her husband, whose name is King Wesley, uh, is waiting. On the bus, she meets newspaper man Pete Warren, who is desperately in need of a good scoop in order to get back in with his editor and his job. Ellen's father launches this well-publicized search for her to get her back, and Pete sees in this uh, his chance. He offers Ellen a choice. He says, you know, you if you give me an exclusive on your story, I'll help you reunite with King Wesley. And if she doesn't agree to that, those terms, he'll tell her father where she is. And hitchhiking and romance ensue. <laughs> <laughs> so... Did you think she seemed super spoiled? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I don't know. Something about the... So this was a rewatch for me, and something about the gender dynamics made me, like, inherently take her side, even though she wasn't... She wasn't that great either. Yeah. <laughs> but, but okay, we'll get into that <laughs> later. <laughs> so I have some trivia uh-huh. about this movie. Many of you will know that this was the first film to have a clean sweep at the Oscars. Oh, yeah. It won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay. Which, watching it back, I was kind of like, it's a good movie, but I didn't think it was that good. <laughs> so, I don't know. I mean, we're probably gonna get um, hate tweets. Don't at me. So, Constant Bennett and Myrna Loy both turned the script down. Mm-hmm. And one of the funny things I found, like when researching this movie, was that Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable both disliked this film. <laughs> and uh, Colbert only accepted the role because Frank Capra promised he would double her salary and she'd be done in four weeks. That's right. Um, I forgot about that. And they did film it in four weeks. And she was the last living participant in the film, she lived to 92. And even unto her death, she still couldn't believe that this was considered such a masterpiece of American (laughs) cinema and didn't understand, like, why people liked it so much. Oh, my God. Um, So she actually disliked the movie so much that she didn't attend the Oscars. And when she won, they had to go, like, get her from the train station to make her acceptance speech. (laughs) 
So she made her speech just in a travel suit, not in a gown or anything. Clark Gable was made to do this film as a punishment by MGM. They lo you know how they would loan actors out in that time. And this was his punishment for having an affair with Joan Crawford. While shooting the scene where he undresses, mm -hmm. uh, Gable had trouble removing his undershirt while like keeping the dialogue going, which I could understand because he'd have to pull it over his head. Yeah. Um, so they ended up cutting the undershirt out of the scene altogether. And then because this was such a hit movie, it actually became a trend for men to stop wearing undershirts. Um, and there's a probably apocryphal story that underwear manufacturers tried to sue Columbia Pictures <laughs> for hurting their sales. Director Frank Capra came up with the idea about the walls of Jericho because Colbert refused to undress in front of the camera. And I actually liked that conceit in this movie. Um, I did too. It was a um, light touch. Yes, exactly. And this, the famous scene where Colbert exposes her leg for the hitchhiking scene, she initially refused to do it. Um, but then they were using a body double and when she saw the person's leg, she didn't want that to be out there as her leg, so she said she would do it instead. <laughs> so I feel like Claudette Colbert is actually a snob. <laughs> So that is all the trivia that I included, but there is a lot more, so I encourage people to look into it. Um, who did you bio for this movie? Walter Connolly, who played Ellen's father. Oh, good. Just because I didn't know anything about him, so, so I can tell you a little bit about him. Yes, please. Okay. So he was born on April 8th, 1887, which is not, uh, you know, we're basically going to release this podcast on the anniversary of his death, oh, wow. or uh, yeah. anniversary of his birth, sorry. Um, he was born in Cincinnati. He appeared in 22 Broadway productions between 1916 and 1935, and almost 50 films between 1914 and 1939. Right, so he was, you know, 70, he was in 70 productions between 19... 14 and 1939 which is I don't know how you do that but his the his best known on stage or screen was it happened one night but before that he he appeared in a couple of notable revivals one of Pirandello's six characters in search of an author and in Chekhov's Uncle Vanya his first film appearances of course were um silent films and he like did that transition to talkies pretty smoothly but his film career began in 1932, so, you know, like, almost 20 years after he started making movies. Um, so in 1932, he, it was in four movies. And that was sort of when he got this trademark role um, of the exasperation exasperated business tycoon or wealthy guy and he was often cast in the kind of role that he portrayed and it happened one night as the father of the you know the female lead character you know sort of a, a rich but not well we could argue about whether he's a terrible person <laughs> and we will. Or I probably will be in accord. I, I, hope, I hope so. So in 1934, he appeared in Broadway Bill with Warner Baxter and Myrna Loy, and then in Libeled Lady in 1936 with William Powell and Myrna Loy. So it's, it was interesting to me that Myrna Loy might have been in this role, because this would have been a third movie that he was, he was in with Myrna Loy. In 1937, he appeared in The Good Earth, and then he was in he was, appeared as one of two con men in um, Mickey Rooney's version of Huckleberry Finn in 1939. He mostly played supporting roles throughout his career, and his last movie was 
as the title character, actually, in The Great Victor Herbert, which was 1939. He did a little bit of radio towards the end of his career, including the title character in The Adventures of Charlie Chan from 1932 to 1938. In the, la- in the last 15 years of his life, uh, he was married to an actress named Netta Harrigan, with whom he had one daughter, and he had a stroke uh, in 1940 on May 28th and passed away, and he was buried in Cincinnati. Ohio man. He's <laughs> through and through. I thought he was good in this role, and I didn't recognize him from other stuff, so I'm glad you bioed him. Yeah. Who did you bio? I bioed Claudette Colbert, and I'm kind of surprised that we haven't done one of her movies before. I know. Yeah. At this point. Um, she was born Emily Claudette Cachon on September 13th in 1903 in France, and her father was a baker there. And actually, she spells her name Emily the same way I do. Uh-huh. Um, the best way. The best way. The superior way. <laughs> <laughs> um, the family moved to the U.S. when she was three. And she wanted to act on the stage from a young age. So after she finished school, she enrolled in the Art Students League and paid for her dramatic training by working in a dress shop. And she made her Broadway debut in 1923 in the stage production of The Wild Westcots. And this was when she started going by the name Claudette Colbert. During the Depression, most of the theaters shut down, so she moved to Hollywood. And her first film there was For the Love of Mike, which was made in 1923. and also directed by Frank Capra but that was a big box office disaster and from what I read that was one of the other reasons she didn't want to do this film because she had such Uh, a bad experience working with him before. Uh, In 1929 she starred in the more successful films The Lady Lies and The Hole in the Wall and she starred opposite Friedrich March in Manslaughter in 1930 and again in Honor Among Lovers in 1931. In 1932 she played the villainess in Cecil B. DeMille's The Sign of the Cross and once again was cast with March and they were a popular pair and drew a lot of people to the box office and they had another hit in Tonight is Ours in 1933. 1934 was a big year for Colbert First, she starred in Four Frightened People about a ship-carrying bubonic plague, which sounds interesting to me and kind of thought maybe I should look into this. Uh, Next, she was the title character in Cecil B. DeMille's Cleopatra, which was a big financial success. And then she starred as Ellie Andrews in this movie, It Happened One Night, um, which became the role that immortalized her. And it was a mega hit all across the country. Uh, She won the Oscar for Best Actress for that portrayal. And in 1935, she was nominated again for Private Worlds, where she played Dr. Jane Everett on the staff of a mental institution. And she continued to appear successfully in films throughout the late 30s and 40s. In 1944, she starred as Anne Hilton in Since You Went Away and was nominated again for Best Actress. In the early 50s, she was in a number of television productions and also performed in the theater. She kind of always preferred stage and went back to that more later in life. Uh, In 1955, she filmed the Western Texas Lady and then appeared in Parish in 1961, and that was her final big screen performance. Her final role was in a TV movie, The Two Mrs. Grenvilles, in 1987. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, she lived a while. She continued acting on the stage for the remainder of her life, and after a series of strokes, Colbert died on July 30th, 1996, in Barbados at the age of 92. So, yeah, she she definitely had a full life. Yeah, a long and, like, 
vast geographically. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. I thought she was good in this role. I haven't watched a lot of her movies. She has a very striking look. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, f- I don't know if it's because of like the eyebrows, those 1930s style eyebrows, but I felt like she didn't have a lot of different facial expressions. Yeah. I wonder if that was just the, the eyebrow. <laughs> eyebrows ruin it. <laughs> just the eyebrow talking. Because I mean, Marlena Dietrich had this those mm-hmm. same pencil eyebrows. It's hard to get pet. Like, I know that was mm-hmm. just of the time, but they, they just really cry out on a person's face. Yeah. So, fun fact, uh, Greta Garbo also had eyebrows like that. And when Ingrid Bergman was brought over to the United States to work, she was going to be billed as the next Greta Garbo. And so they were like, oh, we're going to make you look like Greta Garbo. And Ingrid Bergman was like, I am not plucking my eyebrows that way. I'm not doing it. And mm. so... Um, Good for her. Yeah. And so she has normal looking eyebrows instead. Yes. And and she still looks like, a, you know, I feel like her iconic beauty holds up today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, those... You have to say that. Otherwise, back. I would break up with you. Yes, I know. <laughs> but, but also, she's right. <laughs> yes. Have you seen this movie before or no? I saw it a long time ago, like so long ago that I didn't really know what the plot was anymore. Yeah. Uh, so I I also like watched it like in high school, mm-hmm. I think. And I, I remembered the basics of the plot, but there was a lot that I was surprised by <laughs> in rewatching that, you know, not pleasantly surprised. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, well, what did you think of it overall? Like, overall, it was fun to watch. Like, it was enjoyable, but there were moments where I, like, I literally wrote horrified faces. In... <laughs> <laughs> and actually, my first note about this movie is just rich people problems. This movie is about yeah. rich people problems. As we were watching it, Jen was watching it with me, and she, like, started pointing out, like, references to, like, the Depression. And I was like, oh, it is, like, that contrast between like the very rich and the very poor you know she had to point it out to me I didn't totally notice it at first I did notice this all the scenes with the trains and the buses Mm -hmm. it it showed a lot more poor people Mm -hmm. so yeah and I I enjoy a road trip movie Uh so like I liked that conceit for this and like I agree that it's it's like a fun movie to watch I think the writing is good I just did not find the Peter character very redeemable (laughs) and um so the central like they had good chemistry I thought that was believable but it was just more like this guy's a jerk why do you like him (laughs) that was kind of what I was thinking the whole movie like I was like he seems like an alcoholic who has extreme anger issues and like threatens violence and or commits violence frequently like he was slippery he could go from like being a nice guy to being like to threatening you know you and your family and your children you know in you know at the drop of a hat like theoretically in the service of you know making sure ellie's father didn't get her so that he wouldn't lose the scoop but like was a little bit unsettling to see him do that so successfully yeah he he reminded me of people i know in real life who have anger issues Uh where like they'll just turn on a dime and like you'll just be having a normal conversation with them Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden they're like yelling at you and like calling you names and you're like wait what happened like you don't know what's gonna set them off because the things he got mad about didn't really make sense Yeah. yeah i mean clark gable is very 
attractive, very appealing, generally. You know I like a good newspaper man on screen. I know. But (laughs) (laughs) But the whole time I was kind of like, look, give me Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. (laughs) As a newspaper. Like, I was, I want to, like, feel, you know, safe with my journalist. (laughs) And and if they're saying that they're going to break my neck, I don't feel safe. Yeah. Or threaten your children. I just... Yeah. yeah. Or like his way of causing a diversion is by staging a fight that might potentially include uh, you know, slapping his quote unquote wife. It's less appealing. Yeah, and you know what I kept thinking about towards the end of this movie was a comparison with the Philadelphia story mm-hmm. because yep. there's a lot of par- I mean that was also a 30s movie that was like later in the 30s but there were a lot of parallels in that it's like this rich, spoiled person. She's going to marry the wrong person. And then the guy who comes in, his whole argument for why the person should be with him is that he's going to strong arm her. She needs someone who's going to like sock her in the jaw every once in, you know, because yeah. she needs it. And mm-hmm. that's why they're a good pair. Right. And like, you know, it's well documented on this podcast. The Philadelphia story has like, extreme problems but somehow with Cary Grant in that role like I don't know there's something about Clark Gable's energy where I was like I really believe that you hit people whereas yeah. like Cary Grant I was like I don't think you hit people yeah a cu- fast forward a couple of years and Clark Gable is in Gone with the Wind where he's playing a character who rapes his wife you know hits her and you know is generally abusive to her and so <laughs> like I have trouble not associating him with that role um, yeah. And that that character, which like isn't fair, obviously for this role because that role is in the future for him. But he is. It was very. It was unsettling to yeah to see him like be very two faced and very like like mercenary about it. Even though like he kept Ellie safe during the whole you know the whole bus trip that like and he was he but he was a little bit like you know patronizing and he, like paternalistic he was the only one who could like take care of her and she needed to be taken care of yeah I, that was the other thing like you were mentioning with her father that really like all the men in her life infantilize her and try to control her yeah and she basically fell in love with the only two men who she was alone with at all ever mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> Yeah, well, and, yeah, and King Wesley, like, looks older than her father and is just, like, has nothing going for him except for that he drives an auto gyro. Is that what it's called? A. Uh, yes, it looked cool. I actually was like, this, you look cool in this moment, although the rest of the time you don't. Yeah, you look like a jerk. I guess it's, like, before the time of, like, cell phones or whatever, but, like, there was also a moment where I was like, why doesn't she, like, go to the nearest telephone somewhere and just call King Wesley in New York and say, get in your auto gyro and come and get me. I don't understand. Oh, that's a good point. I don't know why she had to take the bus to New York. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming that what is implied is that it wasn't really so much about him as it was about her escaping her father's control. Yeah. Because, like, she really didn't seem to care about him that much. No. Yeah, I guess you're right. But it's less about less about King Wesley and more about leaving her dad. Yeah. There, there were a lot of Me Too moments in this movie, especially, yeah. like, when she's on the bus. Mm-hmm. Some of them with Clark Gable. <laughs> so, yeah. With Shapely. Like, when he uh-huh. says, when a cold mama gets hot, boy, does she sizzle. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, hmm. It was so gross and creepy, and like, haven't we all been the the girl on the bus with an unpleasant 
seat mm-hmm. companion who is being inappropriate, but, like, there's nowhere for us to go because we're on the bus. Yeah. There's no other woman to sit next to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to this day, and I commute by public transportation every day, I still seek out the seats that have women next to them. Yep. Me <laughs> like, too. Like, literally every day. Yeah. Yeah. And so, that part was a little too real. Yeah, it was. <laughs> this has not like, changed. Oh, and, I mean, her options were Shapely or Peter. Yeah. Who was really mean to her and, like, you know, what about the scene where he, like, grabs her wallet and, like, looks through it? Yeah, and is like, yeah, you can't you can't buy chocolate. You only have $2.20 or whatever. Yeah, like, that would have made me, like, go buy all the chocolate. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> screw you, what do you know? So, I loved how she thought the bus was going to wait for her. Yeah, yeah, that she's, like, she's the one exception, and of course the bus will wait for her. I, I guess, they did they ever explain why she had to go to whatever that hotel was? I think she just wanted to get refreshment at, like, a more refined place. Oh, that was my take on it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I love the scene, too, where uh, she has to line up to, like, wait to take a shower, but she doesn't get it, and then all the women are laughing at her. Yeah, because she's probably never had to wait in any kind of line ever before in her entire life. Yeah, you're, you, you are correct that she's spoiled. I think I got overly sympathetic towards her, because I was just like, you know, stop threatening to hurt this woman. Yeah. I mean, I think she is a sympathetic character in that you can see why she is... You can understand why the way why she is the way that she is when her dad in that first scene is like overly protective and overly like paternalistic and overly controlling and so you can see how she got to be that way and it's not really her fault you know you can understand why she wouldn't want to like be part of that like that she wants a little freedom so she's like sympathetic in that way but on the other hand like i did take a little bit of joy in pete calling her brat all the time yeah i mean she really was i I think you're right that the movie made it pretty clear that it wasn't really a choice because in order to like get away from her father's control she literally had to run away yeah and, like, jump into the ocean, so he yeah. must have been pretty controlling. Like, that was something that was, uh, I thought the father kind of did an unrealistic 180, where in the first half of the movie, he's just trying to control her, and in the second half, he's like, well, I really care about you finding love and making your choice. And I was like, mm, I don't know if this makes sense, unless we're supposed to believe that he was so worried about her that he actually had yeah. a change of heart. Ugh, all the men. They're all pretty awful in this movie. I did like... I I don't want to keep comparing her to Marlena Dietrich, but I loved how, like, sexy her voice was. Like, I liked that deep voice, and she had Uh those huge eyes, like, in every scene. Even, like, when she was playing Mm -hmm. against Clark Gable, I was always looking at Claudette Colbert, Mm because she looked amazing. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've seen her in anything else besides this movie, and it definitely made me want to see her in something else to see how much of what we saw in this movie was her and how much of it was just like her acting a certain way for the character yeah that's true i don't know yeah i guess that would help us figure out how good of an actress she is because i was just assuming it was something different from her own personality what did you think about all of the sexual innuendo all the pre-code stuff it made me think about how other movies would have been different if they were pre-code and how this movie would have been different postcode i mean it was i always thought about the code being like 
set in place and enforced about the same time that, you know, talk, talking movies, like, came into being, which it was, like, established in 1930, so, like, a year after, like, talking movies were a thing. But it didn't actually get, like, enforced until 1934, which seems late to me. But I, like, I don't know. It's nice to see, like, a movie like this to see, like, what uh, what effect the code actually had on movies. Some of it I'm like, yeah, I don't... This is a lot. <laughs> this is yeah. a lot of sex on screen. I can see why you maybe wanted to regulate this. But on the other hand, like, you know, it makes it feel surprisingly modern since, mm. like, we don't work under that same code anymore. And you can go to an R-rated movie and see, like, much more, like, you know, sex, sexual explicitness and sex. So yeah, so it made it feel like more modern in a way, I guess. What did you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I sort of liked the way that the movie dealt with sex and that it there was it definitely had a sexy vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, like I feel like a third of the movie was just them in various bedrooms together. Right. Not um, having sex, having the blanket having between sex. them. But still, like I feel like that's something that is kind of lost now, that mm-hmm. sort of like tension because mm-hmm. totally. everything just goes there now and mm-hmm. i think like the tension can be like very appealing mm-hmm. and i kind of miss that like that's something i often go to old movies for because like mm-hmm. it just contemporary movies just don't really do that that much yeah. i liked the the wall of jericho stuff mm-hmm. um i had forgotten that like the very last scene was just the blanket falling on the floor. But I love that that was kind of, that that was how they showed it. They were just like, well, and then they had sex. Yep. And that, you know, like that, although it was weird that the dad was like so into it, but like, (laughs) yeah, beyond that, that the dad was like, we must call them and tell them they can have sex now. (laughs) Yeah. Basically he was like, tell them it's full steam ahead or something like that. Like the wall can come down. Okay. Even, bef- like, earlier in the movie, seeing the way they played with the blanket and, like, showed them both undressing and how they were, like, seeing each other's shadows across the blanket, mm-hmm. I thought that really built mm-hmm. up the sexual tension a lot. Mm-hmm. And Yeah. You know, I think that's part of what makes this movie still appealing now is that the chemistry is really great. Mm-hmm. And, like, the humor from that also holds up. Yeah, that there's simultaneously some rules they they have to abide by, and also that in the, like, the life of the characters that they're playing, but there are some rules that they don't have to abide by yet in the making of the movie. It is an interesting tension, and I think you're right that it makes it, like, more interesting to watch than just, like, if they automatically could jump into bed together. Yeah, totally. Because, like, if if the first time they slept in the same room, that was just what happened, then it would kind of be like, well, okay. Yeah. Like, now I have to watch another 45 minutes of this movie. <laughs> oh, beautiful girl. What a gorgeous creature. Beautiful girl. Let me call a preacher. What can I do but give my heart to you? Are you ready to talk about costumes? Yes. I think so. Uh, well, one of my first notes was, I love a newspaper man, especially in a trench coat. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did think that Clark Gable looked really good in the fedora and trench coat. Mm-hmm. He pulled off the uh, he pulled off the newspaper man look fairly well. Um, I liked that he had the suitcase of clothes, including the, like, pajamas that um, Ellie got to wear. She looked really good in them. Yes. 
it was immediate. I saw her in those pajamas and I was like, I need pajamas like that. I need. That's what I thought too. I was like, I need some menswear pajamas. <laughs> Why don't I have those? <laughs> um, so it's the like... rest assured underwear in- industry. Haynes, I'm going <laughs> to buy some men's pajamas. <laughs> yes, you can drop your lawsuits against <laughs> Columbia Pictures that are still outstanding. <laughs> I enjoyed that Peter packed two sets of pajamas and then the set that he had looked like a smoking jacket. Yeah. With like a sash, like a belt sash. I know. He kept the fancier ones. I had a lot of questions about like what the reality of what her suit would be like after so many days of walking along the side of the road and riding in a bus and just generally like sitting and walking and being musty and dusty and just like on a person for many days in a row in reality it would be a lot grosser than it actually appears to be yeah i had that same thought i was like look they're not getting a chance to shower uh, also she was wearing heels the whole time yeah which like, i was how like how is she walking that much <laughs> yeah even when she's like acting like she's limping i'm like i feel like my like my legs would have like literally fallen off at this point yeah um i wasn't crazy about her suit no itself um i liked her haircut a lot Mm -hmm. Um, i love that that just generally like this is the statement can be true of every every movie we watch in the 1930s i love this hairstyle i don't even know what it's called but i just love it yeah, I agree. It looked great. Uh, that was another thing I was like, how is her hair not more messed up after all? I know. Like, she, she can't style it. Like, they're on the road. She definitely has a finger wave. Like, that would not have lasted a week. No. <laughs> it would not. Towards the uh, the other dress I feel like we have to talk about is her wedding, wedding dress. Wedding dress? Yeah. Which I liked, except for the terrible flowers along the neckline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did you think of it? Yeah, I mean... I- I looked at it and I was like, this feels like royal wedding quality, like, our, but in not in a good way, like in a bad way, like that someone was <laughs> like, oh, we have $100,000 to spend on a dress, so we're going to make one, and it doesn't matter what it looks like, it just has to look like we spent $100,000 on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It looked like it was like satin couture, and only someone with that body type could wear like... Oh, yeah. A satin dress that was that slim fitting. Yeah. I liked the long train, though. I liked how it, like, the veil was styled in sort of like a cloche Mm -hmm. style. It was very dramatic when she was running. Running? Yeah. Yeah, she had, like, the long train and the long veil. But it's a good thing. It's a good thing she had experience running in heels so that she was prepared (laughs) for that moment. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So I would say overall, like, I was sort of like 50-50 on the dress because it looked good on her, but like there was too much adornment. Yeah. (laughs) We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. So, did you think that there was a social justice message to the movie? I think, I mean, we talked a little bit about the, you know, like, the rich versus poor, and, you know, you know how they encounter in these auto camps these very poor people and poor communities, and just the notion of, like, how she has to learn how, she basically has to learn how to budget, and how to, like, know how much things cost, and how to pay for them. And even though, you know, there's this whole, you know, ruse that they're married and so he's handling everything. I don't know if it counts as social justice, but it was enough of a relief between the very rich and the very poor. And even, like, 
felt like like the cinematography, like especially in that scene where she's going to, she's in the auto camp and she's going to going to the to the shower and there's this very long tracking shot of you know watching her walk through the camp and she's like even though she hasn't like showered in however many days and her hair isn't set and she you know doesn't have clean clothes or whatever you know there's still like a rich quality about her as she's like walking through this panned shot of you know these poor people who are just salt of the earth people who have the quality of being workers and just that it's like that long shot i don't know gave me the feeling that she was like different from her surroundings and is like apart from it but like having to navigate it in a way that was like it was a cool shot but at the at the same moment it was a little bit too long and it was a little uncomfortable so yeah that was a really long shot yeah i mean i didn't think there was a huge social justice message it was kind of just like background Mm -hmm. there Mm -hmm. were hints that it was the depression yeah going on in the background with the people that you saw but i don't think the movie really engaged with it in a very real way and there was like class tension between Mm -hmm. peter and ellie Mm -hmm. but in the like i'm middle class professional and i resent rich people Mm -hmm. kind of way right that didn't really engage with like extreme poverty yeah um, well, and even when Ellie says at some point that she would gladly change places with a plumber's daughter because, you know, she would have more privacy and more more of the ability to, you know, do her own thing. Like, it's sort of a, it's idealized what, <laughs> what it's like to be a plumber's daughter. You know, she doesn't, she's not thinking about how, like, oh, that means she doesn't have a bodyguard and, and that means that, you know, she has to protect herself and... Um, you know, wouldn't necessarily have the money for chocolate on a bus. It's like when people talk about, like, oh, I wish I could give all this up and work on the land yeah. in this romanticized way, but actually it's backbreaking work and really hard, and <laughs> those people would never actually enjoy it or want to be doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. So, what about the Bechdel test? Well, there are no other women in this movie so <laughs> that she talks to. Although, I guess there is that conversation she has at the very end, where she, at the last auto camp that she insists on staying at because she doesn't want to leave him, even though they're only three hours away from New York. So, they stay, and the wife of the guy who runs the auto camp is like, they didn't pay any money. And then she's the one who, like, kicks. Because of some, like, digestive issues, discovers that the car is gone. And so she's the one who, like, kicks her out and is like, we don't serve people like you. That, I think, was the only interaction with other women, right? Yeah, that's the only one I could think of. Like, not even with, like, there weren't any other women on the bus, right? Uh, There was the woman who was passed out. (laughs) That's right, I forgot about her. That's right. So, yeah, I think it's pretty safe to say it doesn't pass. No, easily does not pass. Oh, there was one piece of trivia that I, I have to mention that the creator of Looney Tunes was apparently like obsessed with this film really and and based characters like on things in the movie and and what? Bugs Bunny was like the way that he ate carrots was based on the way <sighs> Clark Gable ate carrots in this and um also like the way he talked was based on Shapely and there were a couple other Looney Tunes characters who were based on characters in this movie 
So Whoa. I thought that was hilarious. And actually, you could to- at least with the carrot thing, the- that whole mannerism totally does mm-hmm. uh, look the same. Yeah. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. I just had to add that because I thought it was just like such a fascinating piece of trivia. Well, I guess we're ready to rate. Do you do you know what you want to give this movie? I feel a little bit conflicted between a 3.5 and a 4. What would you do? Well, you could give it a 3.75. Right. <laughs> right. I give this movie a 3.75. Because <laughs> it was enjoyable, but, like, the minute you start to think about it, or, like, there are moments where you don't even have to think about it from, like, our lens as, like, people living today. I think it's uncomfortable. It's an enjoyable movie to watch, I guess. What would yeah, you... I know a lot of people who really love this movie and rewatch it all the time. Yeah. I would probably watch it again. Yeah. I thought so, too. Because, like, what, what I will say about this movie is... It is, like, a an enjoyable viewing experience. Like, it's interesting to mm-hmm. watch. It's mm-hmm. not the kind of movie where I'm like, oh, God, there's there's still more time. Like, do it, can I really sit through this? Because there are some classic films that mm-hmm. are, like, objectively good, but that are just not fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and this one I thought was fun to watch. I think I would give it a three. Okay. I, so, like, you know, the chemistry was good. I like the road story. Yeah, the... The gender stuff really bothered me a lot, though. So <laughs> I docked points for that. Yeah. Um, and now I'm starting to wonder, like, do I just not like Clark Gable? Like, I think, I do think he's an attractive man, but, like, I'm, like, I need to find a role where I don't think he's a jerk. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't know if that means I need to go watch a bunch more Clark Gable movies. <laughs> is, th- is that the answer? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, if we can find a Clark Gable... I know, let's watch a Clark Gable Western and see how you feel about that. I don't know. (laughs) It's combining two things that I find difficult. (laughs) Also, I have trouble picturing him in a Western. Okay, I would would do it for the sake of the podcast. What's our next movie? Do we know? Currently, our next movie is Desk Set. Yay! Okay, good. (laughs) May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day.